Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Pushkin. If you look closely enough at any success story, you'll see a lot of failure. Things go wrong, partners split up, businesses fall apart. And the story of my guest today, Jing Gao, is no different. Jing's the founder of Flyby Jing, a line of chili crisp and other condiments sold nationwide. After she lost her first food business to a former partner, Jing set out to create something that was all her own and that would create space for the appreciation of Chinese food in America. That's how Flyby Jing was born. It became a success through overcoming a series of obstacles. Jing Gao dropped some gems in this interview, so I recommend you get your notepad out and pay attention. This is Starter from the Bottom. Hard-earned success stories from people like us. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in Chengdu? Yeah, so I was born in Chengdu. It's the capital of Sichuan. And China is crazy about food, right? Everywhere in China. And China is as big as a continent. It is as big as Europe, right? And so there's so many different regional cuisines. There's so many culinary traditions. And even with all of that going on, like Sichuan is known as like the foodiest of all the foodie places. People are just like absolutely crazy about food. Yeah. Would you say it's a big part of the culture? Huge part of the culture. People are just born, like your baseline born as like a food obsessed individual. And yeah, people live for food. Sichuan is also a super leisurely type of place. Um, It's very different from cities like Beijing and Shanghai, where people are always on the go and just like very fast paced. Chengdu is slow. People are all about the art of living. They're always playing mahjong in the park, drinking tea, you know, having long dinners over hot pot. And I was there until I was about five. And my father, who was a nuclear physicist at the time, became a professor and he was asked to go and teach at universities in Europe. And Mm -hmm. so we moved with him 
to Europe when I was about five. Where do you guys move? We moved to Germany. So I went to first grade in Germany in the Black Forest. I was the only non-blonde kid at school. I, of course, didn't understand a word. And I didn't understand a word for the entire year that I was there. Um, And I think I had just started to pick up some German a year in when my dad changed to another university in in England. And so we moved to England then and I started all over again with English and, you know, kind of finding my way around a new country, a new culture, new kids who were, again, like, did not look like me Hmm. and did this kind of on repeat for a few more years to Austria, France and Italy. And then finally we moved to Canada. To Toronto specifically, To Toronto, right? yeah. And h- how old are you at that point? I think I was in like middle school, almost high school. And you settled there, right? Yeah. So we ended up living there for, um, I mean, my parents are still there and we became Canadians. I went to university, came out and started working in Canada as well. So it was like the longest I'd lived anywhere. At some point along the way, you, you started going by, by Jenny, right? Yeah. So that happened... Pretty early, I think I was six or seven, and I just remember feeling like I needed something to try to fit in. I needed something to make me appear less foreign, and I figured Jenny was the the best way to do that because my name Jing Xuan Gao was just impossible for the kids to pronounce. So I don't know where I came up with the name, but it sounded Western enough, and so I went with it. It's it's interesting because you I mean you clearly spent enough time in China to start to develop an identity even if you weren't aware necessarily of what your what your identity was um and then you moved to these really homogenous places um how did that affect your perception of what it means to be Chinese I mean I think I tried not to be I was young enough and adaptable enough that it was pretty easy for me to code switch. I think it's also just in my nature to to try to blend in. You know, I think it it felt more comfortable for me. It was like a shield that I, I had no matter what situation I was in. So I didn't realize until much later just how much of myself I had kind of buried. Were there Were there conversations around your house or expectations about where you might sort of go to school and sort of make a career for yourself? I actually wanted to go to art school. And I, my parents were like, hard no. Like, there's no way you're going to do that. And so I think we found a middle ground somehow in business school. And um, <laughs> This does sound quite like a middle ground, I'm going to say. No sense. Sounds like you conceded. <laughs> um, but I think I had like, uh, there was like an older girl I knew who went to business school and I thought that was so cool. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And I want to carry a briefcase and, you know, look important when I'm walking down <laughs> down the street. And I had no idea what business school was going to be like either. And um, when I came out of school, my first job was actually at a giant company, Procter & Gamble, which my parents were really happy about. What's your job at Procter & Gamble? So I was a brand manager. And at Procter & Gamble, they own so many different brands, right? Right. Each of them has kind of a brand manager that helms the brand sort of and grows its market share over like year over year. Did it feel satisfying? Did it feel like you had found your your thing? I think it was a really great training ground for someone fresh out of school. But pretty quickly, 
I got bored. You know, they have a way that they've been doing things for a hundred years. And there's not that many ways that you can kind of deviate and do your own thing outside of that. So after I would say like a year, year and a half, I, I kind of got what I could out of it. And I didn't see myself there long term. So I started looking at, you know, what else I could be doing. And so actually my last year of college, I did an exchange semester in Beijing. I stayed there for about six months. And that was kind of my first time in China as an adult. And I was really surprised by what I saw. Like, I went into that experience not expecting to love it as as much as I did. I felt, at that point, so disconnected from China. But I found myself in Beijing and was just shocked by how incredible the city was. This was right around the time of the Olympics. China felt like it was opening up. There was so much energy, excitement in the air. You just met the most interesting people from all walks of life, from all cultures. You know, all of them just found themselves in China at the time. And so I became hooked to that energy. And when I went back and started working in Toronto at (laughs) P&G, it just felt like night and day. And I couldn't stop thinking about China. And, um, yeah, so at the first chance I got, I quit my job and moved to Beijing. Then a friend of mine from Toronto hit me up, and he was working for BlackBerry at the time. Mm. So this was actually before iPhones like became the number one smartphone, because Blackberries were at the time. And he was like, I'm moving to Asia to start up the business in Singapore. Do you want to come and work for me? And I was like, yes, sign me up. <laughs> so I started working for BlackBerry and uh, did some work for them in Beijing, and then it brought me to Singapore. And um, it's how I also kind of got into food because I just like was traveling so much across China, across Asia, that when I wasn't working, I was eating and I was exploring and started a food blog on, on the side. I think I always enjoyed good food, but it was never in the foreground of my life. Like, I don't think my palate was really awakened Mm. until I went to China in my 20s. When did you decide to start working in food full-time? So I moved to Singapore with BlackBerry, then moved back to China and uh, with a different job. I was was in Shanghai. When I was there, I had started to spend a lot more time on food. I had my blog going. I had a lot of chefs reach out when they would come to China, wanted me to take them around. I took Eddie Huang around Shanghai, Andrew Zimmer, and so I was on their show. Well, wait a second. But so then how did they how did they know you? Just through my blog, I guess, you know. So your blog got pretty pretty big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like one of the few like English language blogs um, about Chinese food in China. So I had a lot of people reaching out to me all the time. I was like starting to do food like more with food media. And I think at one point I just kind of knew I was ready to go into food full time. So when I left my job, I did not know what I was going to do. But I was like working on a a number of different things, writing projects and and media projects. But not long after, I uh, met my business partner in my next venture, which was my first restaurant. I flirted with the idea of opening a restaurant. I never... 
I couldn't conceive of like actually doing it, you know? I, uh, it just seemed like something so out of reach. But I met this person who had a lot of resources and also wanted to open a restaurant, but kind of didn't really have the idea for it. And I was like, well, I have lots of ideas. <laughs> and, um, you know, we ended up opening the first modern Chinese fast casual restaurant in Shanghai that was like celebrating regional Chinese cuisines. Wow. Um, it was called Baoism. And uh, we opened that, I think, in 2015. What did you learn from that experience? So much. It was actually my first, you know, entrepreneurial experience. And um, through that process, I think I learned so many things. But one of them was also the importance of like picking the right business partner. Because my business partner at the time, you know, who put up all the resources was like, one day after we had opened and it was very successful was like, you know, I think um, I don't need you anymore in this business. <laughs> and uh, egos got in the way and he figured that he could you know, do it without me. And so it was a really important lesson to learn as like, you know, a 20 something year old who had no idea how to like structure a business partnership properly. It was a big lesson. And the restaurant was very successful. You know, we had won awards. We were covered in New York Magazine. We were in Monocle. We were in like Wallpaper Guide to Shanghai. Yeah. It was, it really reached a lot of people. And I, and I wanted to do that even more and with something tangible. And that was personal to me. At this point, was there any bit of you that was doubting your move into the food world? I mean, I was definitely scared. I didn't allow myself to sit still enough to really process how scared shitless I was. I had just spent, you know, two and a half years of my life on this restaurant that I thought was my baby, that was going to be my future. I saw so much of my own identity tied up into it. When I lost that, it just felt like, you know, everything was kind of in a very quick, shocking way, like pulled out from under me. But I didn't allow myself to really process that trauma. And I jumped right into the next thing. Making and that food. was the only thing that I knew how to do. It was the only way I could cope. So you literally just jumped into the kitchen. And, I did. And just started yeah. making dishes and I'm yeah. sure learned a lot, right? Like Pretty quickly, I started to just cook and I started an underground supper club, which I named Fly by Jing. Why Fly by Jing, by the way? So, so Chengdu, giant food city, it's famous actually for a type of restaurant called fly restaurants. Like Tsang Guan literally tra translates to fly restaurant. And it's a type of restaurant that is hidden, hole in the walls, mom and pop run. And they're so named because they're said to be so delicious that they attract people like flies. So even though they're hidden, they never do any marketing, it's, you know, zero atmosphere. People seek it out like flies because it's so delicious. And so I wanted to capture that energy in the dinners that I was putting on. And then the Jing was an ode to my birth name, which at the time I was still uncomfortable with. And uh, I still went by Jenny, but I think I was already starting to kind of reach for something that was personal, right? Yeah. And that was, that felt like me. Um, after having my restaurant being taken away from me, yeah. I think I wanted to be very clear that this was by Jing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so that was how it started. So I would cook for about 20 people at a time every night. 
I would start doing pop-ups with chefs around Shanghai. And very quickly kind of word spread and I started doing pop-ups in cities all over the world. I was invited to cook in like New Zealand, in Australia, in New York, LA, Tokyo. And, you know, when I would collaborate with other chefs, we would create new spins on the cuisines. And so when I would collaborate with like a Mexican chef or an Italian chef, for example, we would just like really remix the flavors on new canvases, you know, on local ingredients wherever I was. And that's kind of, you know, where I started to find my footing. Jing's a risk taker who left her job twice to try her hand at the food industry. I'm supremely impressed by the kind of courage that takes. Don't go anywhere. More with Jing Gao after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Jing's blog and supper club really gave her the platform she needed to feel like she could put herself back into the entrepreneurial world again. But of course, it wasn't without its challenges. We have more from Jing Gao. I knew that I didn't want to do a traditional restaurant model. I wanted something that could reach even more people, be scalable. I don't think at the time I thought a consumer packaged good. I think it wasn't until like 2018 that I started to actually think about a product. I visited California, actually, went to a, a trade show called Natural Products Expo West, which happens in Anaheim every March. 
And it's like the biggest collection of consumer food brands. Um, I walked this show for four days and saw thousands of vendors, just endless rows of food brands. And I walked away from it feeling like really shocked. And I, I, I just was like craving Asian flavors. And I was like, why am I, why do I just want a bowl of noodles right now? <laughs> and I realized it was because after like four days of walking around this hall, like I didn't have any Asian flavors. And this was supposed to be the future of, you know, healthy, natural eating in America, right? Like these are the brands that buyers are going to be putting on shelves at your Whole Foods. And so that felt not right mm -hmm. to me. I felt like something was missing and like, there was a giant opportunity I felt because there are 50,000 Chinese restaurants in America. It's actually the most number of restaurants of any cuisine. Wow. And actually of any like fast food chain combined. Wow. It is an incredible number of Chinese restaurants and it's clearly a testament to how popular the cuisine is. But yet when you go and look on store shelves, you really don't see that same representation or accessibility. And I knew that, you know, the reason why they weren't in the West was because there was no demand. But that stemmed from, like, there not being any awareness, any education. Like, people had no concept of these incredible ingredients. And, of course, if all you see is, like, low-quality, mass-produced products, that's what you associate with Chinese food. The time, you know, I was I was cooking and I was building all these sauces in my pantry, and like one of them was the Sichuan chili crisp. And I started to bottle some of them and give it away to friends. And I don't think it's a chili crisp is a specific kind of a sauce. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what the chili crisp is? Yeah, so chili crisp is a spicy, savory, sort of crispy textured hot sauce that is an oil-based sauce and it's made by heating up oil and cooking dry chilies and a number of different like aromatics and, and different ingredients and that becomes a condiment it's almost like a hot sauce that you can really put on anything and in china every household has like their own version right that they've been it's like a family recipe that's been passed down and they're all so different you know i've had ones that have like mushrooms in it that have beef in it that have like fermented bean paste in it all types of different flavors there are literally thousands of different styles in china right but there was nothing like it in the u.s there was one mass brand laogama which is you know a billion dollar company in china you know it was the only version that was at all available in the u.s and i think most americans hadn't heard of it so you know, I was like, there's definitely this gap to be filled. You know, it's a delicious condiment. It's good on pretty much everything. If billions of people in China can love a condiment like this, why can't Americans? So that summer, I actually went back to Shanghai and started looking into scaling production. And what does that look like when you go back to source ingredients so, for something like this. I already knew what ingredients I wanted to use. And these were ingredients that I had sourced for, you know, years leading up to that point. Through your um, restaurant, work in restaurant, my, exactly, working in the kitchen. Exactly. What I needed was a factory to be able to make it for me, you know, because I, I was cooking large batches in my kitchen, but, you know, that would take me hours Only and hours. so much you can make. And, you know, I would hand bottle hundreds of jars, you know. So I didn't know anything about food production. 
I just went into a grocery store, started looking at jars that were on the shelf. And in China, they it's mandated to like have factories details, like address and phone numbers on the jars. And so I just started calling up factories. And they would be like, yeah, who is this? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm interested in making a, a hot sauce with you. You know, they would be like, okay, what, what restaurant are you with? Or like, what organization? And almost all of them didn't give me time of day because they have so much business from just domestically in China. They definitely had no time for, for someone like me. Uh, so it took a lot of calling. It took a lot of just like, you know, asking for favors, asking for intros. Finally, I found a factory that was willing to talk to me, started working with them on scaling the recipe, which is very different from like cooking it at home versus, you know, in a giant can you explain that? Um, like, how do you go from I have this recipe that works well for, you know, creating at home versus the recipe that can actually scale and be produced at a, at a larger volume? Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of experimentation, a lot of tweaking, even temperature, you know, temperature of oil, which is so important when you're making chili oil, because the right temperature draws out the flavor versus temperature that's too high is going to burn the chilies. Something too low, it's not going to draw out the flavor. Change the temperature by a tiny little bit and it has drastic, you know, effects. And so um, something like that versus the weight of different ingredients, it really just is trial and error. So you start with a smaller batch, then you go into a small drum, then you go to a medium one, and then finally a big one until you can get the consistency that you want. And, and through that, there's the possibility that you could make an entire batch potentially. And that's up, happened. Yeah you, go, yeah, you just have to waste, right? Everything, yeah, gone up in smoke. It's definitely happened when I burnt all my chilies. Oh my Lord. Yeah. And, and, and when you're working with a big order, that's fairly costly, I imagine. Yeah, it can be for sure. How do I actually produce a giant batch it costs like at least 20 to 30 thousand dollars and i definitely didn't have that to produce a, a batch the minimum order quantity yes like they'll they'll help you figure out the recipe to the point where you know it can scale but yeah. then you need to place your order and the minimum order quantity is quite high wow so, so when it gets to that point what <laughs> what do i do yeah. From using Kickstarter to raise over $100,000 to start production of her Chili Crisp, to seeing her dreams break and spill right before her eyes. What does she do then? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. 
Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. We're back with Jean Gao, who's explaining to us her founder's journey on Kickstarter. I had known some friends who had run Kickstarter campaigns quite successfully. I called them up and I asked them, you know, how they did it. So I studied their campaigns after like a couple of months. I uh, worked with some friends and we filmed a video. We went to Chengdu, filmed a video telling the story of what I wanted to do and finally got the page to a point where I was happy. And... um Yeah, we ended up launching the Kickstarter the summer of that year. Still the summer after the trade show? Yes, yes. This is all happening quickly. Yes. (laughs) And um, I reached out to some journalists who I knew were interested in Chinese food. I just cold emailed a bunch of writers that I thought might be interested in this. And I had two people reach back out, and one was a writer for Savour magazine, one was a writer for New York magazine. They somehow agreed to cover the Kickstarter campaign on the day that it went live. And so because of that coverage, we ended up going viral and getting fully funded after just one day. That's an insane success story. Had you considered getting investors by other means? Like, had you presented to investors? I didn't know anyone that had money to give me. Like, I just did not know a single person that could give me that type of money. And so I felt like if I'm going to do this anyway, like I might as well just do a Kickstarter and just, you know, have that be an indicator of like, is this even going to work? I knew that there was a hunger for it. It just wasn't being presented, right? And so my th- my thesis, I guess, was just that people were ready for a new paradigm about Chinese food. Amazing thesis. <laughs> um, so we have this hugely successful, best case scenario, Kickstarter campaign. You get enough to fill a bunch of orders, correct? Yeah, I ended up getting um, thousands of orders. And the great thing about Kickstarter, it was great because, you know, you, you have a built-in, like, initial customer base. And I ended up getting a few thousand customers. It actually allowed me to expand my offerings, like, from just the Chili Crisp alone. At first, I was just going to do the Chili Crisp. And I was like, okay, well, if I hit, like, 50,000, then maybe I'll add, like, drone sauce to the mix. And if I hit 100,000, I'll add mala spice. And people just kept, like, <laughs> kept ordering more. And so 
I ended up just uh, creating like three products from from this campaign when I originally was planning on just one. Were you were you nervous though in filling these orders that like, well, in the end, like people are pre-ordering, but they haven't tried it yet. Like, are these going to be returned? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, God. Like, are people yeah, going yeah, yeah. to want Actually, the more successful the campaign was, the more nervous I was because now, you know, not only did I have to do one product, I had to do three, three times the complexity. Um, there was still a lot of unknowns with the production. Yeah. Well, because you hadn't produced at that. Yes, because I hadn't quantity. produced it. <laughs> There's a lot of unknowns. And I just knew, like, even at that point, so early on, like, nothing ever goes the way that you plan it. And yeah. so I knew that there was going to be a lot of curveballs. And um, Were there some? Like, or, Oh, yeah. What a were million. <sighs> a million. What were some of the memorable? So, what, what were some of the most infuriating? <laughs> well, it just... You know, everything from the factory ordering the wrong types of shallots. So you end up with like hundreds of kilos of like a shallot that you can't use. <laughs> and then like just misunderstandings about like the size of the cap, the the way that the bottle is sealed, the machinery that's required, every single decision point, there's someone that's going to tell you, oh, no, we can't do that. Like, that's not how it's done and, and have no solution to give you otherwise, right? And so it's like constantly preempting the no's and, and, and also, you know, it's hard to do when you don't understand the business as like someone who's never done manufacturing before. Yeah. I don't know how the machines work. Yeah. You're supposed to tell me, <laughs> but you're telling me that you, you, you're just telling me you can't do it. And now I have to learn about, you know, yeah. what I thought you were going to show me show you how I would like it to be done. So what I realized was there was always a way, there's always a solution, no matter what the issue was, right? And and it might look very different from what you originally had anticipated, but it is going to get you closer to your goal, like even if it's not, you know, the way that you wanted it to. This is only a few years ago. How, how's your business changed from sort of building a brand identity around Kickstarter and fundraising from Kickstarter to, to, to where you're at now? How, what changes occurred? Well, I have a team now. I started without a team. I was just one person. I moved to LA. I moved into an Airbnb in Silver Lake and I waited for the products to arrive because it was like going to be on sea freight. Because of the number of orders I had, like I had to fulfill it at a third-party logistics company. There was no way I could like move pallets of product into my Airbnb and do yeah. it myself as much as I wanted to. And so, were you it, able to afford that? I was able to afford it with it with the Kickstarter funds. Okay, but yeah, that's where like another giant mishap happened. The three PL ended up you know, not protecting the jars when they sent it out. It's real quick to 3PL, meaning third-party third logistics. Third-party logistics company. company. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they literally shipped out thousands of jars of chili crisps like next to each other with zero protective wrap in an envelope. Oh, no. <laughs> and I discovered this right before Christmas in 2018 and started receiving kind of the first angry emails from oh, no. Kickstarter backers just being like, what the hell is this like literally pictures of oil pulled I mean, in an envelope. I got to say like, because the, when you say it's an oil based hot sauce, I mean, it really is like you can make a, quite a mess of it. Oh and, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You don't want any, so any spills, unintentional mixed spills. with broken glass in an envelope. It was oh, just man. a really bad situation. And so that was like, 
as quickly as it started, I was like, oh, this is the end. Like this, oh. I cannot come back from this, you know. But luckily, by some kind of miracle, only about 15% of the orders were broken. And the rest of the customers were really happy. And that 15% of the, the customers, they were super understanding because it was Kickstarter, right? And yeah. like, they know that stuff doesn't go well all the time. And so it was also like a really great chance to just talk to them directly. And they, I feel, became even more supportive. Were you able you know, to? We were to, able to, yeah, to reship them product. And so, you know, we, um, I, it was just me. When I say we, it was just me <laughs> doing everything from answering customer service emails. And you don't know anyone in the U.S. I imagine maybe you know a few, some people, you know, exactly. Through your blog, I, though, but, I you know. like... Yeah, I mean, here. I think, I think, um, must have been lonely. Were you lonely? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't go home for the holidays because I had to answer customer service emails, you know. And uh, after I would say about a year, hired my first employee, mm-hmm. went from there to now we have 20 employees, and it's it's been kind of an insane three and a half years of growth. Who was your first full time employee? So, Stephanie, she is kind of like a Swiss army knife. I think your first employee needs to be that. Um, she did everything with me from early days. Like we were packing packages in my apartment to customer service, to ops, like literally everything. I remember when COVID first hit, we had a lot of uncertainty, right? Like we had no idea what was going to happen. Is China US like trade relations going to crumble? Like, am I ever going to, is this business, is this the end? Yeah. You know, (laughs) and with kind of anti-Asian sentiment happening with more and more just like hateful comments online about products and anti-Chinese sentiment was just kind of going crazy after COVID. Exactly. And so, and, and we definitely saw an uprising in kind of hateful comments like on our Instagram and stuff. And so there was a lot of uncertainty, but uh, we could never have dreamt of like kind of what came after that because the New York Times actually ended up doing an article about us in April of that year. So it was the height of COVID at the time. And it was an article titled Your Quarantine Cooking Needs Chili Crisp. And it was entirely about Fly by Jing and our story. And that was where everything changed. Overnight, we sold out of like all of our inventory, which was probably six months worth at the time. And we started taking pre-orders and the orders just kept pouring in. They just didn't stop. There was so much support for our brand. And that just really, I think, gave us the conviction to kind of keep pushing forward, right? Like we, we knew that um, despite everything that was happening, all of the challenges, because even at the time, like when we sold out, we couldn't produce more product. Right. Like China was still locked down. Eventually, when China kind of came back online, my manufacturer couldn't bottle the products. They could only make the products. So we had ended up having to look for a whole new supply chain in the U.S. overnight wow. to try to just bottle the sauce. Finally, when the product arrived in the U.S., we went to this factory near L.A. that I found who agreed to do the bottling. How do you ship chili oil unbottled? How does that? Oh, it's just like in a giant drum, wow. like in a 20 kilo drum. Yeah. Incredible. So we ended up bringing it all over here, bringing it to a local bottler here. And on the day of bottling, me and Stephanie, we go, we're like dressed up in our lab coats with our hairnets and we are so excited. And as soon as they start running the machines, 
the chili crisp, because it's so thick, clogs the machines and the whole thing breaks. Oh. And they're like, and we, we're already late to fulfill our orders. Like people had been emailing, people were like, where's my order? I've been waiting for three, four months. And we're like, guys, any, like literally next week, next week, it'll be done. This Saturday, we're going to go and do the filling. And now they're like, uh, we have no more machines. So the only option is to hand fill every single jar. And I'm astounded that they even agreed to do that because I thought, you know, this is something that I'm used to in China. Like in China, you know, they they do that kind of thing. But I was like, in the U.S., no one's going to be willing to do that. But they they did. And so thank God we ended up then, you know, having to write that email to literally 50,000 people that were waiting for their products. So how does hand bottling, I mean, again, if they're, if, if you're, sh- you're shipping um, this, this, this oil-based chili sauce in a, in a drum, the, <laughs> the separation that occurs is, 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 I mean, how do you now make sure you're getting the right proportion of, of, yeah. in, of ingredients? So it's very each- manual. It's very manual. <laughs> oh so gosh. I think what they did was they actually separated the oil from the, from the bits. Yeah. And then, they would do like the same weight for each Got uh, proportion. Got yeah. it. Like the bits of chili, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Incredible. Was there ever any question as to whether you guys might be respons- like financially responsible for the machinery? Thank God, no. No. Uh, that never came into question. Thank okay. God. They were very kind to us. Okay. I think they saw just like how pitiful we looked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they, they, yeah, they were very kind. But yeah, so that was kind of the, I would say that was like a very pivotal moment for Mm -hmm. the business because that floated our business. Because the entire time I was bootstrapping the company, I had no outside funding. The Kickstarter funding was not that much. And so finally at that point, when we blew up like that through the New York Times, that's when everything changed. And we ended up that year 10xing the business from the year before. Wow, through through fundraising. Through, through no, through just that article. Just through that article. Yeah, because we kept taking pre-orders, right? Oh. And so people would prepay for their products, kind of like Kickstarter. It's an incredible kind of mix of luck and not luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's yeah. like you're having these um sort of rough experiences, but just the right, you know, sort of yeah. like at the right moment, at the right time, the right thing happens to sort of be able yeah. to keep you. It keep all you comes going. hand in hand. Like literally every great thing that's happened for us has come with giant challenges in the opposite direction and and vice versa right and so it's it's um it's just the roller coaster of running a business that you expect and at some point in this process you used to end up going by your real name jing right oh yeah you, you get, so that you get rid happened. of jenny right <laughs> i um it was during that time that, uh, you know, when, when we really took um, quarantine seriously and, you know, I didn't leave my house for weeks, mm-hmm. um, I remember having this kind of realization that I felt different. Um, and I realized it was because I guess I had been holding up such a shield for so long, so for so much of my life, that... I didn't even recognize myself without it. You know, I didn't have to have a shield on when I was at home, when I didn't have to go out and be someone to someone else, you know? Something in my in my mind or in my heart sort of just snapped into place and I realized that I don't have to pretend to be someone else anymore, you know? And, you know, for so long, 
the name Jing didn't really feel right to me. I felt like an imposter almost with that name. And I felt more comfortable hiding behind Jenny. I think what I realized was that feeling of being an imposter was just like me not being comfortable, you know, with who I was. And and when I when it clicked into place, it just felt so natural. And so I've been really like proud to reclaim that. Well, glad you killed Jenny and brought, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brought the real you to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what's next for Fly by Jing? Yeah, so after we grew the business 10X, we actually ended up attracting investors. And we brought on a private equity group in New York who's been really helpful in giving us the resources to grow the team, mm-hmm. to expand into new channels. Like we want to be where our customers are and bring them even more products. And so... We've expanded from just our own website to Amazon to stores like Whole Foods, Target, Costco, Sprouts, Wegmans, all of these stores all across the country. And right now we're in about 3,500 stores, but there's literally tens of thousands more to go into. (laughs) And so it really just is like growing steadily, expanding our distribution, being where our customers are, like people are shopping online and also in stores and mm-hmm. maybe also like at a farmer's market. Like there's so many different touch points and we want to keep putting out great products. You know, like I think our core and what we're known for is our chili crisp and our, you know, drong sauce and mala spice, but we want to just make it easier for people to enjoy these flavors. So we are actually launching a new product and it's um, a chili crisp vinaigrette. Amazing. Which, you know, takes the flavors of chili crisp, combines it with our aged black vinegar, soy sauce, and sweetness. And it becomes this like really versatile sort of dressing that you can put on pretty much anything. We've got a collab with Hot Ones. So we're in season 19 of Hot Ones. How did that Ones. come up? Um, I just. You know, I became friends with Noah from Heatness. He's the one that runs kind of the hot sauce lineup. Heatness is a great hot sauce shop in Brooklyn. And we've been talking since the very beginning about trying to do something. And so I'm so excited it's finally Incredible. happened. Yeah. Just hustled so, that. You just kind of made yeah. that connection, made it work. That's amazing. <laughs> so look out for our sauce. It's like right in the middle. It's the fifth one, you know, in the, in the lineup. Hot ones. It's in the middle, yeah. It's in the new season. World famous guy. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So really just like, you know, growing the team and uh, putting out great products and, and really just be on the forefront of also like um, having a point of view and like re- representing the culture. You know, I think there's been such a lack of voices in the food space, in any space, you know, for people that look like us and really wanting to to be a voice with a point of view and also to create space for more voices mm. like ours. I love that you're not running from from having that point of view. You know, it's like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's leaning really great. into that. It's really mm-hmm. great. Well, I look forward to following the Fly by Jing story. It's not settled yet. There's a lot of room to grow. So Yeah, it feels um, like we're still just at the very beginning. So, yeah. Incredible. Well, thank you for taking the time to, uh, thank to you. speak with us. Before we leave, is there any advice you might have for young women entrepreneurs or either Chinese American or Chinese entrepreneurs trying to make uh, a consumer brand in America? Yeah. I mean, I think that no matter what you do, you're going to have people that tell you that there's no space for that, that, you know, it doesn't belong. And I think, you know, you just have to create your own space. So 
that would be my advice. Just like, you know, create your own space at the table when people tell you that there isn't. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate Jean Gao for coming on the show to share the secret sauce of her success. Jing's story is a reminder that part of what makes successful people successful isn't that they don't fail. It's that they learn from their failures. And in their fearlessness, they keep experimenting. If you're interested in checking out some Flyby Jing chili crisp sauce for yourself, check the show notes for the website and send us photos of what you cooked. Started from the Bottom is produced by David Ja, edited by Keisha Williams, engineered by Ben Tolliday, booked by Laura Morgan, with production help from Leah Rose. The show's executive produced by Jacob Goldstein, who's not all up in the videos for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Ben Tolliday and David Ja, featuring Anthony Ags and Savannah Joe Lack. Listen to Started From The Bottom wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want ad-free episodes available one week early, sign up for Pushkin Plus. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple Show page for more information. If you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.